<clears throat> All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't like history, you can leave now. <laughs> because this whole class <laughs> is a lesson in history, Old Testament history. Uh, Paul makes so many allusions in this passage that if you're not familiar with the, um, the people of Israel's history in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, this verse does, these verses don't make a lot of sense. Also, <clears throat> when I plan my lessons, you know, in advance of 24 hours, no, um, when I plan my lessons in advance, I try to think, okay, how much time am I going to have, and how much material is available to us, and I'm always underestimating. I actually planned on teaching the entire chapter 10. I had it on my list. I had done my, some of my preliminary reading. And then I realized that people like John MacArthur had nine sermons on chapter 10. <laughs> Alistair Begg had six. Uh, and it, you start going in here and you're realizing there's two or three verses that are well, they end up being plaques on people's walls because they're so well known. And rather than just focusing on those verses, we have to look at the entire context. So I do want to start in verse 1 and go, we're going to end up in verse 14 is the idea. But there are a few verses at the bottom of your page, which I only want to touch on today because we'll actually dive into them a little more next week. And I'm doing this extemporaneously. I don't have a complete lesson plan in my head. But if you'll notice, it talks about the Lord's Supper. And guess what we're doing this morning as part of the service. I almost wished I had been able to do next week's lesson this week. Uh, plus, chapter 11, verses 17 and following is the most important verses on the last the Lord's Supper that you find in the New Testament. And yet, most people forget that there's stuff right here in chapter 10. Now before I begin this, what has been the theme or the topic of chapters 8, 9, and now 10? What is the issue that Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church? It's just one. Do we eat meat sacrificed to idols? That's been the whole, these last four or five weeks of lessons of Paul's emphasis, and he's spending so much time on this. I mean, if you're a teacher, or, and you have something that's really important, you end up either over-talking or over-presenting the material, or you come back to it five or six different ways, it suggests to me that the Corinthian church was having a real problem with this, a significant problem. And of course, we in the 21st century go, so what's the big deal? You know, we don't have any problem with buying meat at the supermarket that was sacrificed to idols, except it's, it's the idol of capitalism. Um, I mean, there's really nothing bad about food, right? But here it was, and it's meat sacrificed to idols that was consumed in a supper or in a mealtime. And then Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. You see the contrast? He says, you can go to the pagan's house and you can be basically bringing evil into your body because you're eating this, you know, this, this food that is really pagan, a pagan celebration. And if you're doing that, you cannot simultaneously participate in the Lord's Supper. You can't do both. You either Christian or you're not. You cannot mix the world and your Christ life. And he goes here, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless is not, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are those who are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? Food offered to idols is anything, or that idol is anything? No. I'm simply saying that the pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to participate with demons. A couple things that I, now I'll dive into this a little more next week, and, but as we go into this time, in our tradition, at least the Camelback Bible Church, we don't add any uh, supernatural elements to the event of the supper. It is a remembrance. It is a, it's honoring the memory of what Christ has done. We all know that the Catholic Church has a teaching that in the transubstantiation of the bread and the wine become physical objects that you're consuming. The Lutheran Church is a variation of that. It's not quite, it's consubstantiation, not transubstantiation. Yeah, and you go, what does that mean? Let's talk about that later. Um, not today. And yet, you have, you know, I come from a Baptist tradition, and I don't even remember as a kid how often we did communion. It may have been once a quarter. Uh, it was infrequent. You have some Protestant churches that do it every week. Our church does it every first of every month. And there's this, you know, kind of a rote to it. Do you realize it's the only one of the sacraments that we uh, we actually participate in so frequently? You don't get married every day, every month. <laughs> I hope. Um, you don't get baptized all the time. But this is the one thing we do as a body. And notice what I just said. We do it as a body. You don't do it by yourself. And at the most, there's two, well... Sometimes you can do it by yourself, but generally there's at least two people, one who's presenting and one who's receiving. It is a shared experience. And so when we go in there and, you know, what we're basically doing, and I know how you think, because I think the same way, oh good, the sermon's over, and if we time this right, we can get out of here in less than 10 minutes. Seriously, we think that. I know. Oh, you go, no, we do not. You're such a pagan, Steve. Uh, no, actually we do. It's a add-on. No, it's not. Everything in the service this morning is in preparation for those few minutes. Songs are sung. Prayers are raised. Our worship is is a part of all of this and the word is proclaimed and then we come and I'll never forget when Pastor Daryl Delhousay said why do we have to do this remembrance thing because we forget that's why Jesus says remember and we forget and in that moment we are unified with every believer in the entire world not just the person sitting next to you not the person just in the pew across from you. It's the entire world. It is the one thing we all do as believers. We remember. And in that moment, Christ is there with us, through us, and for us. So that's just a little meditation I want to start our morning with. Because... In a few minutes, the choir members are all going to leave, and then the ushers will start leaving, and you guys will all miss this at the very end. So I wanted to bring it to the fore. All right. Enough of my sermon for the morning. <clears throat> Let's get into the Bible study. Chapter 10, verse 1 starts with a word, for, which connects it to chapters 8 and 9. It's not a separate idea. It's not something new. The last time we were together, we focused on verses uh, 24 to 27, where he was talking about running the race 
prior to that, he was talking about that Paul gives up his right as an apostle so that you know, he, he could demand all sorts of things. But he doesn't because he's trying to present the gospel message. And Paul writes, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All right, little quiz. I know you guys know this, but I want to make sure we all know it. What's he talking about? Because even, I highly doubt, unless you have a study Bible, there's not even a verse reference at the bottom of your page in your Bible telling you, study Bibles would have it, but a, there's no footnote or anything of what is what events are you talking about? We are all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Anybody? Yeah. Go ahead. Exodus. Exodus meaning? Well, the presence of God during the day was cloud and at night was a flame. The pillar of fire. So they had someone to guide them in, in, you know, so they could travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud. That's found in Exodus 13, by the way. 13, 21. And then pass through the sea. You know, we all saw Charlton Heston do that. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, the Moses and the Ten Commandments going through the Red Sea. That's in Exodus chapter 14. These are a couple of the most iconic um, pieces of Israel's history. And Paul alludes to it in passing, it seems like. But he doubles down as more you go into this verse. The next comes to a phrase, verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All right. What in the world does that mean? You're baptized into Moses? Has that verse ever bothered you before? Probably never even noticed it. Because we read through, we read through this very quickly because we, oh, we all know these stories. But wait, he says he's baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. How can you be baptized into Moses? Did they have ceremonies? Did they, did they dunk them? Did they sprinkle them? I mean, what's going on here? Go ahead. You have a study Bible, you cheat. Okay. <laughs> well, I would say it's the, the baptism of repentance, like John the Baptist was doing, mm -hmm. and it's um, because of the Ten Commandments. But see, there wasn't an actual physical baptizing into Moses. Mm -hmm. This is a metaphor. Yeah. We need to make sure that we realize everything he talks about in the passage. You can start there, and you go, what? And if you stop there... You're confused. This is why every time you read scripture, you need to read it in its context. Because it continues on. Verse 3, it talks about spiritual food and spiritual drink and spiritual rocks. Oh, and the rock was Christ. And then it talks about down in verse 6. And I'll do this on purpose to help you with all or the rest of it. Now, these things took place as examples the Greek word there is the Greek word typoi. T-Y-P-O-I. Meaning typological or typology. A picture of something. Not the actual, literal, but a picture. So everything he has just said is a picture of the Christ life as expressed in the Old Testament passages. One guy put it very, very well, a guy named Harold Marr. Um, he said, baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea simply means they were initiated and, not, and inaugurated under God into union with him and also with Moses and his leadership. They were, the thought is a spiritual one. They were united to God and to his servant Moses. The cloud is a representation of God in his glory and the sea, the redemption of God and his leadership. They weren't actually physically baptized into Moses. 
it's a picture, and if you think about it, there are phrases in the New Testament, I think it's Romans 4, or is it 6, where it says you're baptized into Christ. It's that metaphor, that picture of what is going on. It says they all ate the same spiritual food. Well, they also ate literal food. What was it? Manna. The manna? Exodus chapter 16, by the way, in case you're keeping track. And oh, by the way, Jesus called himself the bread of life. And in our Lord's Prayer, we say, give us this day our daily bread. That's a reference to the idea of God's daily provision. And if you ever think about, and you do a study of the manna in the Old Testament, it's rather quite fascinating. Of course, I get off on a lot of rabbit trails in my studies, but the thing about manna is they were only given enough for that day. And were given a double portion on Friday. So they would not have to gather on Sabbath, Saturday. God provided just enough. That means they had to go to Fry's every stinking day. <laughs> Can you imagine having to go to the grocery store and only being allowed to buy enough for tomorrow or for today, depending on how you schedule things? That's actually kind of a harbinger back to the uh, ancient days without refrigeration and without the ability to store food. And the only way to store meat was to salt it. You couldn't actually stick it in a freezer and, you know, unless you were in Alaska, and you just stick it outside. <laughs> uh, uh, but you had this idea of you had only enough for tomorrow, but not beyond that. And so I still remember when, uh, let's see, now I'm going to forget her new, her married name. That's terrible because they've been married forever. Susie Petoni is Susie Coleman. When she went to Romania for two years as a missionary, never had a furlough, so she never came back during those two years. She came back and her mom had said, could you just go down to the grocery store and get some crackers? And because we've run out of crackers. So she said, she said, oh, sure. And I'm sure she got in the car, drove down there and walked into Fry's and walked into the cracker aisle. <laughs> she said there were, you know, nacho, green onion, plain, salted, not, you know, all these different kinds. She goes, for two years, we would have given our left hand for a box of unsalted saltines. You couldn't get them. It was so rare. And she goes, I just stood in the aisle and I cried of the wealth of America and how we get so immune to the needs elsewhere. Never forgotten that story. And here you have Jesus is the bread of life. The people of Israel provided with bread every day. And they ate this same spiritual food. And it says here, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, which is an odd phrase because you go, well, what are you talking about? For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Now we have incidents in Exodus 17 at Horeb, where the people were thirsty. There, oh, they had been in the desert for a while. Um, we know what that's like. And there's a lot of them. And they didn't have enough to drink. So God said, go to this rock and strike it once. And he did. And out of that rock came water enough to slake the thirst of all of those people. We don't know exactly how many, but it was in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. That's a lot of water. Imagine this city, the daily need of water in this city alone. Extraordinary. Oh, Jesus calls himself the living water. Isn't that interesting? 
in John 7, it says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me from his innermost being will flow the river of living water. John 4.14, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water I give will never thirst. But this spiritual water, this spiritual rock, and notice it says the spiritual rock that followed them. Now, that's a very odd phrase because there is no indication that they carried the rock with them on the Exodus. They probably didn't. Although, there is a rabbinic tradition that does say that they actually put some massive rock on a cart and carried it with them, either as a symbol or something that provided for their thirst on a regular basis. So it could be that Paul was referring to that rabbinic tradition. Because it's not in the Old Testament. There's no indication at all that they had this rock with them. But why would Paul write this if there weren't some indication somewhere that there was this idea of it following? And then he unveils that that rock was Christ. You realize how rich this is? Paul is drawing from their entire background, the Jewish background that the picture of the Exodus and their salvation because they were saved by crossing the sea. They were saved by the manna. They were saved by the water. And then he says, and you're saved by the rock which is Christ. In the Old Testament, God is called the rock many times. In Genesis 49-24, He's called the rock of Israel. In Deuteronomy 32, in the Song of Moses, verses uh, 4, 15, 18, 30, and 31, I looked them all up and read them, that God is described as the rock. And then the psalm calls God a rock one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different times. This idea of the rock being Christ, Christ being God, is all part and pervasive throughout Scripture. Nevertheless, verse 5, most of them with God was not pleased. With most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What is he talking about? Well, he goes back into this in verse 6 and following. Now, these things took place as typoi, as pictures for us. Paul switches to first person plural here. And you'll see the us or we in verses 6, 8, and 9. He includes himself in this. That's really a, it's a wonderful thing when a pastor isn't saying you all the time. Because then we feel like you're just yelling at us. But when he says we, us, I struggle just like you do. So past, Pastor Paul, these things took examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The word desire can actually have an underlying meaning of the word crave. And all through these other passages, which I'm going to bring up, we refer to both Exodus and in the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers, in chapter 11, the people were frustrated and angry because they were tired of the manna. Now, you know, growing up, mom would make my sack lunch and I'd take it to school. And it would be peanut butter and jelly. You know, there's a black market on the playground at elementary schools with sack lunches. <laughs> I mean, it becomes horse trading out there. And when it's lunchtime, it's like, you got peanut butter and jelly? Oh, I do too. 
Uh, anybody got ham? I mean, when you start this, you know, I'll, I'll trade you my peanut butter for your ham or whatever. I'll give you my apple for something because after a while, you're just tired of it. I'm, I had, but these people had the same meal for 40 years. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The uh, manna is described in Numbers 11, verse 7. The manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. Now you can imagine the creative cooks <laughs> as they're out there going, someone's saying, hey, I've got nacho manna and I've got green onion manna. Think of the cracker aisle. I'm kidding. But there becomes this sameness, the previous verses. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. Our verse 6, desire. They had a strong craving and they wept and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And now our strength is dried up and there's nothing but this manna to look at. We would rather be slaves and eat well than be free and have this dreck. God wasn't real happy with that. Uh, it says here, um, the people complained, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed parts of the camp. <laughs> okay. And then it says, this is terrible. I'm sorry that I'm laughing, but it's like, come on, people. You read the book of Numbers, and it's like a litany of God killing everybody. Because these people were so resistant to his goodness. They could not accept their freedom. They could not accept the glory of God among them. And they fought him at every turn. There had been an opportunity to also pick up some quail. And while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. They were doing this in defiance of Him. Their meat was not even in their teeth. And the Lord struck the people with a great plague. And the name of the place was called, in English, the, the Graves of Craving the place was called the graves of craving, craving, for they were buried, those who had the craving. This evil that had crept among them, this dissatisfaction with the goodness of God, and then declaring it in defiance of him. Paul is referring to that here. You would miss this if you just read the verse by itself. <clears throat> that we might not desire or crave evil as they did. Well, that's what he's talking about. And then he has four different things to watch out for. Number one, verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, that's from Exodus 32, four, four to seven. Moses had gone up, gone up on the mountain. He's gone. You know, hey, the leader's gone. He probably died up there. Hypothermia. Something's wrong with him. Where's he been? And so Aaron says, well, bring me all of your gold. Bring me your, your jewelry, your bracelets, and your rings. And we'll melt them down. And we'll create a golden calf. Maybe that will appease God. thing is, a calf was a pagan image. Wasn't even biblical. Wasn't even a part of this, the, the temple ceremony, why he thought that was a good idea is beyond me. So they build the golden calf and they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's the verse he's referring to. 
they became idolaters. Two, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Okay, what's he referring to? Okay, if you're taking notes, it's Numbers chapter 25. We have <clears throat> the people lived in Shittim and they began to whore. That's what the scripture says, I'm sorry for the word. But the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, the Moabites, the pagans. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. They yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Not only did they consort, but they yoked themselves. They became members of the Baal church. They went through the membership class like you guys did. Okay? They, they spent the weeks and they learned everything about Baal. And oh, he's a cool dude. He, he actually does all this great stuff for us. And they yoked themselves with him. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Oh, well, we've heard that before. And uh, I don't... You can read the rest. It's really gory and gross. But basically they said, we want to hang these people. And then a guy brought a Midianite woman into his family, into his tent. And so the, one of the priests took a spear, went into the tent, and slayed both of them. And the plague stopped. But then it says, verse 9, this is a number 25, 9. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Oh, wait. We have a problem between 1 Corinthians 10 and Numbers 25. Num a numerical challenge. Numbers 25 says there were 24,000 killed. Your text says that 23,000 were killed. Hmm. We have a problem, don't we? to the skeptics who say, see, the Bible is full of errors. Well, first place, there are a lot of quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament that are not exact. A lot. Because they didn't have the U version on their phone. They couldn't just look it up. They didn't have Mr. Google or the interwebs. <laughs> they couldn't look it up. They were in massive scrolls that were not common. You didn't carry them around with you. You have Bibles with you. Paul didn't likely have the Old Testament scrolls to carry around with him in his backpack. So he's going from memory. So maybe he forgot. Um, maybe he was quoting a variant reading in one of the Old Testament texts. That's possible. What's more likely is if you'll notice Paul added an extra phrase. 23,000 fell in a single day. And Numbers said a grand total of 24,000. So day one, the Ebola virus hit them all and they all died immediately. To use a modern word that you would understand. But a plague hit and wham! enough people to fill talking stick arena were killed in one day. Over 20,000 people. One day. Bam. But there were probably some the next day or the days after and then the plague would stop. So anytime, anytime someone starts poking at things like that in the scriptures you say, you know, there's other things other than just say, well, the bold face facts or that it's not correct. Yeah. You're trying really hard to undermine the scriptures and you, you're just never going to win that battle. It's interesting, this is a little trivia thing that I found, in Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that's why it's called the book of Numbers, it starts with a census. The whole book of Numbers starts with a census. 
Aaron and the Moses and Aaron said, we need to have a count of how many people we have. And this was 38 years before this incident in chapter 25. And it said they counted 59,300 men who were 20 years old or older. We have this incident in chapter 25 where 23,000 are killed. Chapter 26, verse 1, Moses and Aaron decide to do a second census. And there were only 22,000 people. 56,000, 38 years. Plague happens, and now there's 22,000 left. You can do the math yourself. There is obviously a devastation among the people because of their flagrant um, idol worship. Third, it's verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Well, that's Numbers chapter 21. So they're grumbling and complaining, and so, you know, God went down to the zoo and the, uh, the snake section and opened it up to the public. And they weren't very nice snakes, and they killed a lot of people. And ultimately, as these snakes were everywhere, what did God have Moses do? Erect a golden serpent. Hmm? Erect a golden serpent. All right, he created on the staff. All you had to look and live. Look, look and live. Look at the image. And don't we have an image that we look at? It's like precursor of this idea to look and live. Isn't that interesting? And they refused. Oh, I know. And some of the people refused. It's like, what are you, just nuts? <laughs> they wanted to turn their eyeballs. They just didn't want to look. Because that meant they would be giving control to God. So he refers to that. We don't put God to the test. And then, verse 10, nor, which is the fourth one, grumble. Now, when was the last time you had grumbling and sexual immorality put in the same sentence as equal, as problems? Paul's not shying away from that. You want to go, oh, wait, you know, sexual immorality and testing God and idolatry, that's not grumbling. <laughs> Paul's not really meaning that. Oh, yes, he is. Grumbling is not trusting in God and the goodness of God and saying, I know better. Boy, I had to stop and go, oh, crud, I grumbled this week. <laughs> I was dissatisfied. I, you know, you have to be really careful with this. Some of these people did this and they were destroyed by the destroyer and that's Numbers chapter 16 where 14,700 of them died from the plague after they had been grumbling. You want to go, this story is not exciting. It's not fun to read. If you just go and read these passages one after the other like I have this week of Numbers where God is saying, I, the anger is kindled against his people and bam, you know, we tend, in our modern culture, don't we, to kind of whitewash this activity of God, don't we? Oh, God would never do that today. Isn't he the same God yesterday, today, and forever? His anger can be kindled, and sometimes it is. He waits for His people to repent and turn to Him. He calls us to this regularly. And Paul is laying this down. That's why this whole section has a headline in your Bible called Warning. This is a warning passage. And don't forget the context of the question that Paul is answering. Should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Should we participate in pagan rituals? Is it okay? Because aren't we free in Christ to do whatever we wish? The answer is no, you're not. Yes, you are free. 
But not the other half of that question, to do whatever you wish. He keeps saying this over and over. So in verse 11, he says, Now these things happen to them as a typoi, as an example. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then comes two verses, which are the, some of the most cherished verses in Scripture. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We all know what it's talking about. Proverbs 16, 8. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. These Corinthians were so full of themselves, he has just laid out all these warnings to these people who thought, we are immune to any of this because we are free in Christ. And he says, beware. Now for those of you who love grammar, Verse 12 is a very unusual Greek verse. It has four verb forms and three verb tenses in it. It has a, and don't ask me what this means, okay? Even though I'm in publishing and I'm an editor, this was not my area of expertise. I was a big picture guy, still am. But it contains a present participle, a perfect infinitive, a present imperative, and an aorist subjunctive. You have no idea what I just said, unless you are a grammarian. But there's no other verse like this. It literally reads, Therefore let anyone who continues to think that he stands remain watchful lest he fall. You have some shading of the tenses there by the way I just read it, that it reflects the Greek a little bit better. Many years ago, um, there were four of us, we had taken a trip up north. Um, it was my, my boss, a, 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 a store manager, myself, a, and a management trainee. And we drove up north, the four of us, to spend the day together. And we went up to Oak Creek Canyon. I'd never been there before. Um, you know, it's basically the Grand Canyon with trees. Uh, <laughs> that's how I describe it. It's still, you know, vast and a canyon, but there are trees all along the inside of the canyons. It's very interesting. And one of the guys, Ray Earl, 6'5", you know, 250, just a mountain of a man. And he was fearless. So we were at some lookout. And doggone it, Ray, he stepped over the, the barrier and walked to the edge because he wanted to see. And he tripped. He had to take a step down and then there was this tiny ledge and then nothing. And he took that final step and... And I'm, he, we're, we were not even within reaching of him. And he was just like trying to get his balance and then he pulled back and he turned around and whoa that was a rush and we're just thinking you idiot I mean we almost watched this guy die in front of us if anyone thinks you stand take heed lest you fall I watched that verse in person in that moment. He was totally confident. Hey, I'm not going to have me. And he stumbled very slightly, but it was enough to put his momentum going forward. And if it weren't for God's hand going, whoa, Ray, we want you around a little bit longer, he had been gone because there was probably 200, 300 feet below him and he would not have survived. Anyone in the spiritual life, if you think you have it all together, you don't. You cannot do this on your own. You have to be reliant on God. Absolutely reliant upon God. And then he rolls into this whole section about temptation. No temptation has overtaken you or seized you that is not common to everyone. 
God is faithful and he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he provides a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The key to note here is that the Greek word for temptation is also translated as trial and translated as test. Temptation, trial, and test. The same Greek word is translated all three different ways in the New Testament. Our translators have chosen to put the English word temptation here. Were they right? Probably within the, in the context. It makes sense with relation to everything that's prior to this and the whole idea of that temptation to participate in pagan rituals. But at the same time, you can also look at it is that every temptation is a trial. And within every trial is a temptation. That's why they're synonymous. And it says you're not going to be overwhelmed by it, no matter what. Everyone has a choice to succumb to the temptation or not. Now I have found, did find a couple stories I want to read you quickly. I know I've run out of time here, but I do want to not go away without these. John MacArthur wrote, a friend of mine told me one time he had taken a new job with an important company and he was very excited about it. He'd only been on the job for a little while and everyone had left the office one night and when he came back to his desk to put his stuff together to leave, someone had left a huge amount of money on his desk in cash. Well, he immediately took the money, put it in his briefcase and thought, I have to return this. So he wrapped it up and the next morning brought it back and came into work, he immediately walked into the boss's office, put the money on the desk and said, somehow somebody left this money on my desk last night. I don't know who it was or who's going to be missing it, but I wanted to turn it in as fast as I could so that no one would be distressed by its absence. And the boss looked at him and said, I put the money there. It was a test. And you passed. Whoa. Imagine that temptation. It was there. It was a test. He passed. There's another story. It's a little more uh, probably down to where we all live. As a woman in a weight loss group, she had lost a great, great deal of weight and was very pleased with herself. And one of her bad habits had been stopping at a donut shop every morning on her way to work. And there she consumed more than her fair share of grams and calories. But she had gotten control over eating and she was elated. So on the way to work one day, she passed the donut shop where she had failed so many times. And on impulse, she thought, I'm going to go in there and this time it's going to be different. She's going to order a cup of coffee and that's what she did and nothing else. And she's going to prove to herself that she had control. She ordered her cup of coffee and sat down to drink it. Then across the table from there, a man who was not showing the same self-control drank his coffee and ate multiple donuts covered with powdered sugar. And suddenly he stood up and left the table leaving one sugar powdered donut on the table right in front of her. It was too much. She could not let that donut go to waste. She snatched it up, snarfed it down in two bites, dropping ten... ten telltale evidence of sugar all over the front of her dress. <laughs> and then to her horror, the man returned. <laughs> he had not left at all. He had just gone to refresh his coffee. <laughs> and she could not deny that she had not eaten the evidence. You know what her problem was? She went into the donut shop. If you know you have something in your life that is a weakness, flee. It says here, the text says, he will provide a way of escape. J. Vernon McGee says, sometimes the way of escape is the king's highway and a good pair of shoes. Just don't go in there. What are you, who are you proving anything to? You're just simply proving that you are a weak person. Don't do that. Don't go there. 
Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, the great value of personal trials, no matter what they are, he says, I'm afraid that all of the grace that I've gotten out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours could lie on the head of a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows, my pains, my griefs is incalculable. What do I not owe to the crucible and the furnace, the bellows that have blown on the coals and the hand that have thrust me into the heat? I bear witness that the worst days I've ever had turned out to be my best days. And I can bear my personal testimony that the best piece of furniture that I have ever had in the house was a cross. And I don't mean a material cross. I mean the cross of affliction and trouble. When we shun a trial, we seek to avoid a blessing. When trials come, when temptation comes, God says, this is a test. And I'm, I will give you the ability to withstand it. He will never put you in a situation where you must sin to get out of it. It's just not going to happen. There's always an option. I mean, Joseph with Potiphar's wife, she's putting on the moves. And he had a choice. She grabbed his cloak and he let her have it. And he ran out of the place without anything on. You have that choice. He fleed, and yet he was still accused later. But God had him in his hand the whole time. And he does that with us. I have literally run out of time, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time. Such riches. The entire Old Testament story is here. The entire New Testament story of Christ as the bread of life, the, the living water, the rock on which we stand, the temptations and trials that are thrown our way. What an incredible passage. Lord, thank you for this blessing. And let us keep it all in mind as we go into our time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.